Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with a former teammate and the color commentator for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, Eduardo Perez. All right, and there you have it. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a former teammate. He played 13 years in the big leagues, and you can see him every Sunday night calling games on ESPN. Ladies and gentlemen, Eduardo Perez. Eduardo, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Booney. Really, this is this is exciting. I used to always see you to my right, and I was like always, what's up? Tell me, do I go left or do I go right on defense? And used to hear, you know, <laughs> used to see you rake all the time, and now I get to on your podcast this is great role reversal it's fun it's fun uh earliest memory going to the yard we had similar childhoods we'll get into that i think we're the same age uh earliest uh memory for you as a little kid going to the yard with pops earliest memory probably i would say the spring trainings um more than anything everybody talks about well during the season but there were so many rules during the season early on especially in cincinnati when my dad played in the 70s that spring training was the time that we would enjoy it. It was in Tampa, Al Lopez Field. We'd have a blast there, and uh, all the kids were there, it just seemed like. And not only were we at the ballpark, but it was also at the hotel, or you could call it a motel back then where all the players used to stay with the families. And we had kitchenettes and the whole thing. And I remember from Carolyn Rose, uh, she would make the tomato soups, we would we would act like we were players. We you know have that lunch and crackers there during the afternoon, and then we go we'd go to the ballpark. And I remember Sparky Anderson used to bring us all in and tell us what the rules were for all of us, from Pete Rose Jr. to Ken Griffey Jr. to his brother Craig, my brother Victor, who's three years older than I am, and um, you know just all the kids there. But we we knew one thing: we weren't allowed in the clubhouse unless we won. And I say we won, meaning the Reds won. And even in spring training, that's the way it was. So we had a blast from Bernie Stowe to the Stowe's. And and for me, that was the earliest memories, even before heading out to Riverfront Stadium. You know, it's it's amazing because I I remember that about Cincinnati. And we didn't know each other. We were six, seven years old. But I uh, same thing for me. We Phillies were St. Petersburg. And, uh, you know, I remember going to spring training and I got the bat boy in spring training. And once the season started, my dad kind of would buckle down on the rules, but unlike the reds. And I remember when Pete got traded to the Phillies, Petey came over and, oh, and he man. had told he had told me the rules like in Cincinnati, was, Cincinnati, well, they're real strict. But did you notice that Petey got to do things the other I kids didn't get to do? I was pissed. All right. That, I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. I was really upset about it because I'm like, are you kidding me? He gets to stand there next to his dad in the dugout and he wasn't even bat boy. He would only bat boy for his dad. And then he take a knee right next to the, to the, to the on deck circle with his dad. And he got a baseball card out of it too. Pete and repeat. To this day, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I get all over him. I get all over him for that still. And you know, we, but you know, Pete and I, we were pretty much, we're, we're the same age. He was born November 16th. I was born September 11th. Um, I remember Junior was also born in November. So we were always together. And, you know, he was my best friend growing up. 
spent a lot of time over at his house. He would spend a lot of time also at the ballpark uh, with him together. And, and when we parted ways, my dad ended up getting traded to Montreal. It was, it was different. It was completely different where the Phillies were a lot more laxed and, and the ability of him being able to be in uniform and you guys being able to be in uniform. And yeah, he had different rules. But with me, it was, we weren't allowed there. As a matter of fact, my first time in a big league uniform during a big league game was in Philly when my dad got uh, signed with the Phillies in 83. And the only thing I was really upset at my dad for was get back uh, from school. School had just ended in Puerto Rico. We get into our, our condo. It was a townhome, as a matter of fact, in Sicklerville, New Jersey, right across the Walt Whitman we would have to take to get to the vet. And he goes, got a surprise for you in the closet. I'm like, oh, the uniform. I know. He brought it. <laughs> so I see it. I see the pinstripe uniform in the closet. I see the P there in the front. I'm like, yeah, I turn it around, and it says BB on the back. I was like, what happened to Perez 24? And I, that's the first thing I thought of. I was like, I don't get my name on the back. I get BB? Dad, does this mean I have to work? Yep, I was a ball boy for good, I want to say maybe 12 games, four series. And then I said, enough of that. And I, I sat in the bench uh, next to John Denny and started flipping seeds until Pete Rose grabbed the hold of me and said, uh-uh, if you're going to sit here and you're not going to work, you're going to work at uh, looking at pitchers and helping us out win ball games. 13 years of age. Unbelievable. Very cool. Was Kenny Bush the head clubby back then? Of course, oh, everybody, you know, for you for you guys out there listening to the Boom Podcast, this is kind of you had to be there to know, but there was a, a a guy, legendary man by the name of Kenny Bush. He was the the Phillies clubby for years and yes. years. And he was awesome, but he didn't come across that no, way. I mean, man. he was the meanest. Was he was, was the meanest person in the world, but but he'd always take care of the kids, but he always acted like you were in his way. All right, go ahead. It it, it is so cool. You're right. I was so scared of him. I wouldn't say much to him. Uh, The guy that I loved and he still does it to this day. And that's the crazy thing. This is 1983. And he would walk in with a bag um, on his shoulder and it was John Ballas. Remember Franklin? Franklin batting gloves? I do. Oh yeah. He still does that. He does. And my first pair of batting gloves were Franklin batting gloves. And I still, I see him in clubhouses during spring training. I see him in the postseason. And I'm like, are you still doing this for real? He goes, yep. I was like, I thought he was, I thought that was the coolest job. I guess it is because he's still doing it. I remember Eddie and today the game's a little bit different. You know, 2022, these guys have anything under the sun that you want. But when we were playing our generation, it was like cool to get your own batting gloves. And then all of a sudden, I remember when, when Johnny Ballas, I was with Franklin my entire career. And, you know, they had the basic Franklins that they gave out to everybody. But yep. I remember in, in the early 2000s, I started, I said, Johnny, I don't get much out of this Franklin contract. I said, I want some hockey nets or something just so <laughs> I know you're paying. And he would laugh. And I'd say, you know what I'm else I'm going to do? Because later in my career, after we played together in Cincinnati, I went to more of a, a golf glove type material on my, so it had to be special made. And, and I wanted to make it tough on Johnny because I'm thinking, you just 
roll into the clubhouse, hand me the the stock six pack of Franklin batting gloves. I said, I want to make it tougher on you. So I want my initials on it. And I don't want the Franklin leather. I want Titleist leather. And Frank, you know, you know, Ballas, he'd look, oh, Boone, you're such a pain in the ass. But I'll tell you what, he started getting me that Titleist golf, golf leather. And I remember then it was, you know, the inconsistency, inconsistency, because he'd be at home. It seemed like he had his own machine that he was making. And I call him, I say, Ballas, these last six you sent me, they're no good. And he's like, oh, come on, Boone. I, how'd you know the difference? I didn't have the Titleist leather. I had the tailor made. I said, because I need the Titleist leather. But Johnny Ballas, he is. He's a legend. He's a legend. You know, there's so many stories. And I think in that one year that my dad was in Philly in 83, everybody always talks about the 70s and rightfully so, right? That's where the Reds, big red machine, after that went to um, Montreal for three years with my dad. That was really cool as well because the Olympics had just happened. So we were actually opening opening up a new baseball stadium in Stade Olympique, Olympic Stadium. And we used to go through the tunnels from the baseball field and the baseball stadium to the swimming facility of the Olympics. So, so that, was, that was awesome. We used to always just look through the windows. I'm talking nine years old, eight years old at the time. And, and we're looking through the windows, just trying to see if we see any girls or anything through the windows. It was awesome. Uh, moved forward, Boston three years, and then the Phillies in 83. Another thing a lot of people don't know about, you know, that, that time of year is that one of my good friends in 83 was Tim McGraw, Tug McGraw's son, uh, because he was also on the team. And we would play in the family room, the defender. I don't know if you remember uh, Defend- video yeah, game? yeah, video Defend- and- <laughs> yeah, defender, and then uh, there was a there was oh, Stargate was the defender's son. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So defender spent, was the original. We spent a lot of time after batting practice while the visiting team was taking their batting practice. That that's where we would be before the game started. Then we'd be in the dugout. That's how we'd roll uh, during our. That was our routine while the Phillies were at home. And uh, all of a sudden, I look back, and I'm like, wait, wait, Tim McGraw, you're a singer now? Wait, you're married to Faith Hill? Pretty cool. Pretty yeah. cool. Not bad. Not bad. Good for you. And on a serious note, because I'm sure you get asked as much as I did, because the, the the lives that we got to lead, um, you know, some of my fondest memories to date, you know, our playing career, that's one thing. Of course, you always appreciate that. Absolutely. But I look back on those childhood and the things we got to do, you growing up with that big red machine, myself getting to grow up that with that, uh, those 70s Phillies team to eventually cool. won a world, they won a World Series in 1980. I think when we're going through it, I don't know, I, I can't speak for you, but when we're going through it, that's just normal for us. It's like dad gets up, he goes to work, we get to go to work with him. And, and, and I was crushed when he wouldn't take me to the ballpark. That was like my everything. Same but, here. But years later now, you know, all grown up, kind of, I'm kind of grown up now. I look Never back. Well. <laughs> I look back and I think, man, what a lucky childhood I had. You know, how cool was that? that it was normal for me to roll into the yard and hang out with Tug and, and Schmitty and Carlton and Pete. And uh, they, they were just my playmates at the ballpark. And I never had a favorite player. You know, that's a weird thing. I never had a favorite player. One week I'd be hanging out with Manny Trio because, you know, I always was a middle infielder and I'd be helping him paint his glove. And then the next week I'd be hanging out with Bull. You know, Luzinski was a, was a really close family friend still to this day growing up. We'd lived, you know, uh, 
a couple hundred yards away. So we were neighbors and, and, uh, but it was just so cool. I just wanted to hang with all the guys. It's like, I don't have a favorite. I just like hanging with all of them. And it probably was a pain in the ass more than I was, uh, uh, a positive for the clubhouse. But I remember as a kid, I just loved it. I'm I'm with you. I'd never had a, it, it was weird because, you know, dad going to work is that's what he did. He had his routine and I'm like, mom, I'm going, I'm going with dad. Uh, no, you're not. You have some errands to run. I'm like, no, that's not happening. Uh, it was it was a punishment if I wasn't able to go to the ballpark uh, with my dad. And, um, you know, it's you look back and what I really found it really striking. And I don't know about you on this one, but go back to the first day that you got to the big leagues that you were called up. You already knew where to go and what to do. Nobody had to tell you or explain to you, hey, this is the way we do things. And I think that's one of the biggest advantages that second-generation uh, ball players and third generations, in your case, have. That you have the ability to understand where you have to be at a certain time, where you have to go, and how do you have to behave in a clubhouse. And you sometimes look at other younger players when they come up, and you're like, how did they not see it? It's so obvious. But for us, growing up in that clubhouse, for me, it was all about stealing gum with Pete Rose Jr., my brother, and and all the kids uh, where Bernie Stowe used to run us out of the equipment room. Uh, we entertain them while we would do something else. And when I signed professionally, when I got drafted, my first check that I signed was to Bernie Stowe. I, for all the years that and all the gum that I ever took from him and everything that he ever did for me, he never cashed it. He framed it up. It was in that Cincinnati Reds clubhouse. Even the day that I got to be a Red, it was still hanging there. And I thought it was the coolest thing. Uh, they become family members. David Concepcion, Joe Morgan, rest in peace. Uh, you have Johnny Bench, Pete. They still call to this day. They text me to this day. Um, they're, they're my uncles. And whatever they want, whenever they call, I'm there for them. Uh, because they were always there for me. And I thought that was, you know, it's, it's such a great family. I don't even want to call it a fraternity. It's a family for me um, that... You know, I, I, I respect every single one of them for what they were and who they have become to this day. Yeah, very cool. All right, you were born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, Eduardo Perez as a little kid. What were you like? Was it, was it always baseball or, or did you branch out? Oh, no. <laughs> um, the funny story is when I was in high school, no one knew that I played baseball. So the, the way it goes is my freshman and sophomore year in high school, and, and I played Little League Baseball, and I did everything like that, but I never played travel ball. There wasn't really much travel ball then. My travel ball was going to, to the big league stadium and working out and shagging balls and hitting in the cage. Uh, that's why defensively I was never really that good because you know we weren't allowed in the infield at certain times. I would always be in the outfield just shagging. Uh, didn't have a lot of reps as far as a defensive standpoint would be, but I played a lot of basketball. I played a lot of volleyball. Um, played a lot of tennis as also while my brother was there. And then when he graduated and, and went to uh, went to college, I was on my own. And my junior year, my parents decided, you know what? Let's. What do you want to do? My dad's like, you should try baseball. So I went to Miami, left Puerto Rico, started at Christopher uh, Christopher Columbus High School in Miami. And uh, started classes there, and I wanted to play basketball and baseball. And they're like, nope, our basketball team is 
uh, is already set. You're going to play baseball. And I was really disappointed because I was a really good basketball player. And that's the sport that I really loved. I understood everything about baseball and I knew the history. I knew how to do things. I just didn't have a lot of reps. So all of a sudden, um, Brother Herb was the coach of the Christopher Columbus team, the Explorers. And I'm there with now bench coach for the Kansas City Royals, Pedro Grafol. He was also a teammate. He was the catcher there. George Fabregas also was an infielder on that team. Um, others that also made the big league teams, uh, uh, the big leagues were there on that team. But what was interesting was that I didn't make the team my junior year. And Brother Herb came up to me and said, look, because you just moved over here, your family's still in Puerto Rico, we might lose some games because people say by default, I wasn't polished at all. He said, no, go, um, uh, you're going to sit out this year. You're just going to practice with the team. You're not going to play with the team. You're going to try, we're trying to get you better. I called my dad. He was in Puerto Rico at the time. This was November, right before Thanksgiving. And I said, dad, I don't want to come back to the school. I can't play basketball and I can't play baseball. And the school I thought wasn't academically challenging enough for the academics that I had gotten in Puerto Rico. And he said, well, then come back to Puerto Rico. Have fun. Be a kid. Got back, started playing basketball, everything cool. Started playing uh, a little baseball at the high school there, but not much. We only had like 12 games. It wasn't much of a baseball atmosphere there at that school until I went to a um, batting cage one day, and I'm putting some tokens in the machine, and I'm hitting off, the, I remember, the 65-mile-per-hour batting machine, and this kid by the name of Desval Acevedo, I'll never forget his name, he asked me, he goes, what, what team do you play for? And I said, oh, I don't play. I'm just, hit, I'm just hitting baseballs here for the fun of it because I like hitting off, off a machine. You know, you put a token in, get nine balls to swing at. This is great. I don't have to pick them up. Don't have to shag them. I'm in. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, you don't play for a team. How about if you play for our team? What position do you play? He goes, I play all over the place. And all of a sudden, I went over to, uh, to their practice. He showed me exactly the address and everything, how to get there because there was no GPS back in the day. I ended up getting there on a Thursday night practice. As long as it didn't interfere with my basketball, I was okay. Long story shorter, because it's already a long story, <laughs> I, I tell him, I go, I go uh, uh, Luis Rosas, who was the, one of the most famous scouts there, calls and says, I want you to play for our team, and I'll sign you. And I'm like, I don't want to sign. I can't sign. I want to go to college. He goes, well, I'll get you to a college. Don't worry about that if you come play for me. So I did. Next thing you know, next uh, the year after, once I graduate, I'm going to Florida State University. And the story to get to Florida State is awesome because the coach for Florida State, Rod Delmonico, who ended up coaching Tennessee after, calls me and he didn't know that I spoke English. And when I answered the phone, he's trying his best to speak Spanish. And I'm like, who is this? And he goes, and he stops and he goes, um, you speak English? And I said, yeah. And he goes, have you taken the SATs? And I said, I'm about to take him again. He goes, did you get over a 700? I started laughing. Like, I, I'm going to a college prep school. Of course I got over a 700. He goes, you don't need to take it again. I need you to come over here to Florida State. And that's how I ended up at Florida State University. It's because Rod Delmonico called because Luis Rosas had seen me play with that team. And if it wasn't for this kid, Desval Acevedo, that saw me in the cages, I would have never ended up where I'm at right now. Wow. Pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Um, the Puerto Rico 
uh, you were in San Juan, if I'm if yeah, I'm not mistaken. Correct. Tell me how that worked for you, Eddie, growing up. You like I said, you're born in Cincy. Dad's playing for the Reds, and Dad goes to Montreal, and then goes ended up going to the Phillies right. in '83. But your whole childhood, what was what was your life like? Did you go? Did you travel with your dad in the summers, and then go back to Puerto Rico? What, tell we me did. What you, we, we we absolutely did. Um, you know. Extended family is huge amongst the Latinos, obviously, and, and, and our family is the same. My mom would always go with my father, always. She would travel with my father, not on the road trips, but if we were in Cincinnati, she'd go to Cincinnati, Montreal, Boston, Philly, back to Cincinnati. She was there. My brother being three years older, once he got into high school, we had to, I stayed with my brother and we would stay with my grandparents and my great aunt and, um, and the extended family played a huge part in all of this where my brother and I were always together. And then when he left to go to college, I was on my own um, in high school there. And that's the reason why I went to Miami for that one year, because my parents were like, well, you're on your own. Uh, my grandfather at the time had had surgery. He wasn't feeling well. My aunt had moved out and basically my teenage years, um, except during the summers, I spent a lot of it with my with, with a lot of my buddies and and with my aunts. Uh, but um, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be the person I am right now. Uh, during the summers, always with my parents, uh, we would travel. Sometimes uh, I would travel with my dad, go on road trips with my dad. I thought that was really cool. That was awesome. But when we were younger, we were always we changed schools all the time. We would uh, start school in Cincinnati and then finish up in Puerto Rico, uh, and then go back to Cincinnati later on. But once we started getting older, we had to settle down and, and, and hunker down a little bit more. So, um, as I said earlier, I am who I am because of that, because of my extended family. Florida state, you went there from 89 to 91, uh, got to play. And, and this was for those of you listening to the boom podcast, back when Eddie and myself were playing, uh, college baseball, there were basically two two places to choose from. You go to Alaska League, go to the Cape Cod League. And nowadays, I think I think it's really uh, great for the kids because there's a lot more options. You know, and back then it, it, back then it was Cape Cod and Alaska, and it was <laughs> yeah. only it was only for the elite player. It was only for that top tier, and everybody else kind of during the summer didn't have a place to play. Now there's all levels you can play at. There's there's tens of 10 or 20 leagues. So I think it's really good for the develop the development uh, segment for all players now, but back, back in our day, it was Alaska. It was Cape Cod. I remember I went to uh, Alaska. My dad had played in Fairbanks and he said, Hey, I had a great experience, Brett. They gave me a job. I made a little money and I went up there. It was a real interesting summer. You know, those summers where the sun never went down. I had tinfoil on my windows uh, but it was bizarre because, you know, who were we not to explore as as 18 year old kids? So once in a while we'd go out, you know, and we'd come out of the bar at 1230 at night and it's the Damn. sun straight overhead. And we're like, wow. It, well, and, and you ever had one of those long nights? <laughs> no, I know, Eddie, you didn't. You never had one of those long nights where you came out of the bar at at seven in the morning. But uh, 
Yeah, you'd come out, you'd come out, it'd be like, it's time to go to the beach. It was really a different experience, but but I really enjoyed my time. I, I was, I'll be honest with you, I like that green Easton. So the thought of going to Cape Cod and being exposed when I was 18 years old with a, with a wood bat, I, I kind of said, yeah, dad, I'm going to fall in your footsteps and go to Fairbanks and keep raking with aluminum. <laughs> that was my, that was, yeah, that's how my decision was made. But tell me a little bit about that Cape Cod Lake, still the number one. Alaska's kind of fallen out of, out of, you know, it's not, I don't think it's any longer the number two, Let but me, Cape Cod remains the number one. Give me a little bit about a, a snippet of that Cape Cod experience. Okay, before I do, now I have to ask you this question. I can't help myself. What was your job in Alaska? Oh, it was the greatest. Okay, Alaska, the Fairbank Gold Panners is where I played. Okay. And they still to this day, they say have, they have the same turf, probably that was dropped day one of Olympic <laughs> Stadium. Okay, the whole infield was turf. And my job, and mind you, this is 19, I want to call it 88. Yeah, 1988. My job for $17 an hour was to clean the turf on the field. Come on. Yeah, with a Zamb- with one of those little drive, yeah. driving, yeah. driving, uh, driving. It looked a like column. a Zamboni. It looks like a yeah, Zamboni. Yeah, it looks right? like a Zamboni. It's a big vacuum cleaner. Right. So basically, I'm just playing bumper cars, and they give me the they give me the job. It was five, I had five hours to clean the turf, which I could do in about I don't know thirty minutes if I was an efficient worker. So I got five hours at seventeen bucks an hour, and basically we'd be taking naps. It, you know, I'd have buddies; they had other jobs. They had to water the outfield grass. Uh, so yeah, it was it was it was tongue in cheek. Yeah. Get your that work was not my that was not my experience, man. What was wow. yours? Wow. Okay, so <laughs> Cape Cod League. After my freshman year, I got abused, abused. I hit like a buck forty, I think. I mean, I got. I wasn't ready. I weighed a hundred and probably by that time one seventy five. I gained already fifteen pounds from when I first got to Florida State, and I was. I just was not ready offensively, the only home run I hit got fogged out and it didn't count. That tells you how bad it was for me, the experience, but it was a great experience because my mom once told me and once one time told me, she goes, you know, your best experiences and the best way that you've always learned is by your failures. And the Cape Cod, I failed playing there in that league. I uh, played for the Brewster Whitecaps. At one point, I almost I was like hoping that we'd lose so, so I wouldn't have to go back to the ballpark. And I was like, should we become the Black Caps? But um, in, in all in all reality, it, it, it really I struggled, struggled offensively, struggled defensively as well. Um, but it was a major turning point for me. Not only did I struggle there, my job was at a Kmart. My first job, I had two jobs. My first job was at a Kmart. I was getting paid probably seven bucks an hour. I was 17, seven bucks an hour. And I was in charge of the shoe department and it, being in charge of the shoe department in Kmart. Okay. We're not talking Tom McCann back in the day. We're not payless. I don't think even existed. What happened here is they had those little nylon strings that attach one pair to the other and people would rip them up so they can try on the shoe and then just throw them there. And my job was to make sure that all the shoes were organized. So I would have this teammate of mine, Luis Garcia, who wasn't playing at the time, who wasn't working at the time. 
And he would come in and just move and shake the shoes and put them all over the place. And my boss would start yelling at me. And I got frustrated. I took off my little yellow vest with a smile on it. I threw it there and I was gone. My next job was at, um, it was at Ocean Edge Golf Course. And you're thinking, oh, pretty not bad at a golf course, right? No, my job was housekeeping. I used to go in to the rooms, to the, to the condos and the houses and the townhomes and the big houses, knock in, housekeeping, housekeeping, and clean out everything and put all the clean linen so that the housekeeper can come in and line everything up. And then we would have to come in and vacuum uh, the entire place. But we have a van. It was Ron Maurer, the shortstop. He went to North Carolina, was my roommate and myself. And that was our job to be able to come in and just take everything out of the refrigerators and put everything and leave everything clean. It was like a condo hotel type situation. Sounds yeah. to me. Uh, sounds to me. You got Eddie, the better, you got the better end of the. You state. should you should have gone to Alaska. I should have gone to Alaska, man. Yeah, little little different worlds of the. I don't know. Maybe because you're up up in Alaska, you know they. It, I don't know. You can get away with it, but yeah, we we definitely had that. Whatever housekeeping. Yeah, we don't see anything. Just get your job done and pick up your stipend check. <laughs> but I, I had a fun time. Ninety nine. Uh, you got to do something I didn't get to do at USC, go to a college world series. We got eliminated two years in a row in the finals, never got to go to Rosenblatt stadium. Now you've done plenty of games there on the other side of the mic. You also, you got to go there as a college player. Pretty cool experience. Really cool experience. Went there twice, um, 89 and 91. And, uh, the first time we were the favorites, we lost to Wichita state. Second time we were the favorites again, the number one seed, and we lost in and out of two games. Uh, so, you know, but that was my draft year as well. But I grew up so much from my freshman year. I was a defensive replacement in the outfield my freshman year. I played the first 30 games of the season. And then the next 30, I came in for defense in the outfield, believe it or not. And then after that, my, my sophomore year, um, our first baseman, Bob Raboyne, I think it was after game two or three of the season, he ended up having a hernia. And I moved from the outfield to first base. And the rest was history. Never relinquished that job again and and played first my sophomore and junior year there at Florida State. And, and you know, again, I got there as a 160-pound freshman, and I left as a 215-pound freshman with a better haircut. And a little more cash. Your number one pick in 1991, um, and and once again, we can we our lives kind of kind of uh, parallel one another because we kind of both had the same upbringing, same thing. Get drafted, same stuff. You know what I was hearing uh, through my minor league journey was: uh, is it a lot to live up to? You know, you got big shoes to fill. I, I was always from the from the uh, side of. I don't care what my dad did. Screw Bob Boone and and screw Ray Boone. You know, I love him to death, but I've got to do this for me. You know, Uh, all the, 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 the daddy balls over, man. We're professional players. I'm sure you heard the same things. I I, I'll tell you what I got sick of Eddie. By the time I got to AAA, you played in Vancouver. I was in Calgary. I think we played against, we might've crossed paths a little bit at that AAA year in 93, but 
I remember just getting bitter, like going on the road, you know, in the PCL, you go on the road and you do an interview uh, wherever you may go. You know, I go up to Vancouver and the first thing the Vancouver guys are going to ask me, well, is there a lot of pressure on you being the first third generation? And I'm going, I don't want, let's talk about me hitting 326 (laughs) right now, you know? And at a but at a certain point, you just have to look in the mirror and say, you know, this is my life. And and I was born into a pretty cool family, very very fortunate, and that's just a part of my story, and it's been with me, you know. And eventually that subsides, and and you go about your major league career, and then you know th- those questions get answered, and and they're in your rearview mirror. They'll always be there. They'll always be a part of my life to this day. I do an interview, and the question is, hey, so what was it like growing up with a grandpa? You know, that's just part of my life, and I've accepted it, and it's what makes me me, and it what makes our family us, so I'm proud of that, but I'll tell you, as a as a 20-year-old, as a 21-year-old with my hair on fire, I just wanted to show everybody, hey, I'm a big leaguer, too, and I'm sick of talking about my family. Do you have a similar... Uh, experience yeah. or, or were you a little more mature than I was? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll tell you this. And how many times have you ever been asked? Uh, so is it any pressure being Bob Boone's son? Because a million. I, I, I get that question all the time. I used to get that question all the time. And, and then Pedro Grafol, my roommate, my junior year in college said, man, pressure's having five kids without a job. And I use that as a safety net the entire time. I was like, I've got a job. I don't have any kids at the moment. So that's what pressure is. Um, I am also the son of Patuca Perez. And she never once got a big league hit. She never once has run, um, I want to even say, 100 feet. She's not athletic. She doesn't like to do any sports. And I am blessed to be her son as well. So I used to say, look, man, if I'm half as good at what my dad did, then I'm okay. Um, so that's that's what I that's what, that's how I always strive to be. Um, we were fortunate. We were fortunate because intellectually we knew the game a lot sooner, and it came to us a lot easier because everybody said, "Oh, their instincts." No, you knew what to do because you were around the the event, the sport, the entire time. You saw more games than anyone else did at your age uh, coming up through the minor leagues. And that's what helped me out. I wasn't the most talented or the most gifted guy out there. I might have had size, but at the same time, I at least knew where to do, what to do with the baseball once it came to me instinctively, and you did the same thing. And I thought that was that's the beauty of survival, just like your brother did, just like my brother when he signed professionally. He's like, man, I just don't have the – I don't have the skills, but I know exactly what to do with with the baseball. But for him, he left the, he left the sport in a hurry. Um, for me, I was just passionate about it, and I just didn't like failing. And every time I failed at something, I just got up and wanted to get hit again. Uh, so that's why I just kept persevering. But but you're right, man. Every time somebody would come up to me, um, I remember in high school one time, people are like, "Oh, you're just playing because of your dad. You're you're terrible," and it it irked me. It bothered me. And, you know, that game, I remember I responded with a home run. It was my first home run ever over a fence in, in, uh, in high school baseball in Puerto Rico. And I was like, wow, this, you know, I have it within. I just wish I had all the information these young players have now to be able to succeed even more. Yeah, it is. It, it is. What the, oh, man, 
today's game, and we'll, and we'll touch it. We'll touch on that a little bit later. That what they have at their fingertips, because I was a, you know, as a player, especially as my the second half of my my big league career, I wanted my hands on. I wanted to get my hands on anything I could from a data standpoint. Absolutely, vid, video, film, give me everything. I'll decipher it. I know what to use. I know how to use it for me. You know, that's just for me. Other people, you do it a different way. But I, 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 man, to have that laptop right now in that dugout and have oh. the things that they have today that we didn't have, uh, I'm a little bit envious. And, and I look at those guys, I go, man, I wish I had that. But uh, you got to the minor leagues pretty quick. And you get to the big leagues in 93, your, your first kind of cup of coffee, you get 180 ABs, and you do pretty good, 254 and 30. You're coming up with uh, Timmy Salmon. And uh, Chili was on your first team. I saw that. Jimmy Jimmy Edmonds, uh, JT Snow, uh, JT, who I played against in high school. But what's your first? Buck Rogers is your skipper. Uh, What's your first memory of finally that day? You get called up. You're in the big leagues. And, man, I'm here. I get called up. I come in through the training room. I come in through the back door entrance. I have my bag in hand, and Buck Rogers shakes my hand. Uh, When he comes out and he's going to shake my hand, have you ever shaken? did you ever meet Buck? Um, I think I've met him, okay. but I, I don't remember well, the time. Or place. One thing that stood out to me that I did not know, because I didn't go through minor league spring training with the big league club. I was in the minor leagues. I hadn't done minor league spring yet. And he comes to shake my hand, and because he's a former catcher, and all the foul tips that he used to receive out of his fingers, his fingers were everywhere but straight. When he went to shake my hand and said, welcome to the big leagues. I guarantee you know it, where you have to go. I said, yes, sir. Let's do it. And the first thing that really stood out to me that not a lot of people know about my career is that the first time I walked into my locker, my number was Perez 21. And I was raised in Puerto Rico. My baseball park in Puerto Rico was sports. It was in Sports City, Roberto Clemente. 21 has a huge meaning for for me personally. Um, I remember having gone to the clinics with um, with my father at Ciudad Deportiva Roberto Clemente, Sports City Roberto Clemente. Um, I got to learn so much about Roberto, not only being there in the sports city, but also in school. It's part of our requirement, not only for the public schools, but also for the private schools in Puerto Rico to show the importance and thanks to the late Vera Clemente, she was able to keep his vision alive with, with Sports City. Um, so when I had number 21, I had doubts of, wow, this is my first game. I'll wear it, but I don't know for how long. Because for me, it was a number that shouldn't be worn by any Puerto Rican. It shouldn't be worn, period. It should be retired. That's how I thought in 93. But when you're a young player, you just follow along. So that game, I get, I get into that game, right? And, and I start at third base and we're playing against the Oakland A's. And mind you, I had not played third base in college. I signed as an outfielder. So my first year in Boise was in the outfield. And sometimes I'd move over to first base because it's what I played in college. My second year, um, my second year, um, was also in the outfield a little bit, but in instructional league, they moved me over the last week to third base. 
So I didn't have that much time. I had a year and a half of, of playing third base before I get to the big leagues. And the leadoff hitter for the A's is Ricky Henderson. And then Canseco's on that team. McGuire's on that team. Sierra's on that team. And you got Chuck Finley and Langston pitching. I mean, those are rockets that are going to be hit towards third. That's what I'm thinking. My first ground ball was a do-or-die play where Ricky Henderson threw a, a hit a chopper, and I know I have to hurry. Made the play. I was like, oh, this is easy. This is great. It was my probably my best game ever. I had a bet with my brother also since we were little, since I was like four or five years old. Whoever gets to the big leagues first has to swing at the first pitch, no matter where it's at. So my brother calls me and says, don't forget about our little deal we've, we've had for years. Swing at the first pitch. Joe Baver throws me a slider that I knew was way outside. No chance of hitting it, and I swing. And they're like, oh, another guy that's uh, probably a free swinger. So he throws me like three more sliders and a fastball. Right after that, I end up walking on five pitches. I take first because of that first pitch swing that I made on the slider. And then I hit a double on my next at-bat for the first hit in my career, and I hit a home run where I drove in Timmy and Chili also on a three-run shot in my first game. I'm like, man, this big league stuff is easy. It didn't turn out to be too easy for me. But um, getting to the big leagues for me was was uh, was a surreal moment because I always went there as a son of a big leaguer, never as a big leaguer. And and it hit me pretty hard once I put that big league uniform and I it wasn't I, I wasn't there because of my dad. I was there because of my own accomplishments. You played in uh, in Anaheim through '95. He got traded to the Reds. We became teammates '96 uh, yeah. to '98. When you first get traded to Reds, now this is going to bring back childhood for you. I mean, it would be like me going to Philly. I never, I never had that opportunity. But coming to Cincinnati, was that your first thought? Is because the clubhouse was the same as when Dad was there and you were a little kid. Uh, it hadn't changed yet. You know that was that was old old Riverfront. So. Um, your emotions when you're coming back to, to Cincinnati now as a player, not as a kid. Yeah, that was that was really different. I was a little disappointed I had to leave the Angels because I felt at the time that, you know, being a first-round draft pick for the Angels, you think that you're going to stay there for quite some time, but then all of a sudden you're going to your hometown where you were born, where you know the streets, you know where to go to, you know how to get into the stadium. Um, and you're not doing it as a son again. You're doing it as that big leaguer. I had to go first to Indianapolis uh, before getting and getting the call up to Cincinnati. But once I got the call up and I was able to put on that uniform, Booney man, it was, it was the coolest thing ever to having played in the father son games when you're little and having all those pictures of, you know, knowing that we can, you know, as kids, you, you're so naive. You think that you can beat the big leaguers and you do beat the big leaguers. And now you're sitting there, you're standing there in the same box that the big red machine players did. That was really cool as well. And I remember, uh, you know, you talk about Bernie Stowe. He has a special place uh, with me as well. I remember Bernie when I got, you know, I got traded to the Reds yeah. at an early age from Seattle. He was he was a special man, and his sons uh, carry on the legacy. And uh, <clears throat> oh, I love Bernie. Yeah. But now you're coming to Cincinnati. You got 
and this is something you had dealt with. I had dealt before. I got Marge shot. I got shots CO2. I got hurt out of batting practice. And and people had told me the stories, and I've told this story before on the, on the podcast. But uh, Lark takes me to, you know, when I first got, I think this is before you came to Cincinnati, and we went to Marge. You know, she has that party every year. And right, out, right. And Lark would say, Booney, you just got to kind of put up with whatever Marge wants to do. I said, she's always sticking her hand in my pocket, putting dog, dead dog hair. He's like, you want that multi-year deal? You better do it. And by the way, there's going to be an elephant here today. You might want to jump on that elephant and take a ride if you want that. If you want that three or four year deal. <laughs> but, for, the, uh, for, the, for the love of the game. I'll tell you what, Marge, she was a piece of work, man. You remember all that. It's like, hey, I need some bats, Bernie. And she's like, well, Marge makes us turn in crack bats to get new ones. I said, I play every day. I hit sixth. I know. Come on, I need I need some bats, and uh, it was it was a bizarre place. We'd fly coach once a year to the West Coast, and yep. it, it wasn't fair for for those other. Uh, it, it wasn't fair for us as the team flying uh, on a on a coach on a uh, non charter flight, but <laughs> equally, it wasn't fair for the general public to have to put up with our nonsense going coast to coast either. That was just the nature of the beast at that time. You got a Marge story for me from childhood or from your time in Cincinnati? I've got stories, man. Of course I do. All right. So you were on the squad. I remember this time it was uh, Sabes was still there. Sabo was still there. Yeah. Uh, Hal Morris was there. Lark yourself. And we all get called up as a team to go to her office. We weren't playing well. And everybody's like, Marge wants the team upstairs in, in our office. And, and she starts talking and starts, you know, getting real inspirational and everything. And she's like, first of all, she's like, sit down, guys, sit down. There's dog hair everywhere. Nobody wants to sit down. Shag carpet. Well, shag remember, carpet, the whole thing, dark, right? And, and there's dog hair everywhere. Sit down, sit down, guys, sit down. And everybody's like, go ahead, sit. And they're like, oh, man. So then she's like, what do we have to, what do we have to do? Do we have to pray? What do we, and Chris Sabo, God, I love this guy. He comes in, he goes, watch, no disrespect here, but don't you think the other team's praying as well? I mean, to the point, it was so funny at the time. We're like, it's not going to work right now. All we have to do is just play the best that we can. Um, that was one. Obviously, we know about all the dog poop that was in the outfield. And it would, for some reason, Shotzi would always do it around the right field area or the first, just by the second base and behind first base area. I'm going, oh, great. You know, you know, he's got his spot already. He's already sniffed it out. That's what he does on his moment. No problem there. But uh, Marge, man, it's she'd come in and she'd always like, come here, come here, honey. It was always, come here, honey, give me a kiss. And you're like, oh, Marge, come on, for the love of God. I wish Lark could have told me what he told you. Whatever you have to do, just, you know, just suck it up. Do what <laughs> you have you to want do. That, you want that good deal. You want that good. I didn't, I didn't do that. I, I got in trouble with that one. That didn't happen. You know, was the other part that was interesting also, and, you know, and I work with him now also on SiriusXM when I do my, you know, the radio on, on SiriusXM is, is uh, Jim Bowden. So Jim was the general manager when my dad was the manager in 1993. And I was in AAA with Vancouver. And my dad, after 44 games, gets fired. And I don't know if it was Marge, I don't know if it was Jim, but, you know, it just happened, and it was only 44 games he had. 
to be able to prove himself and show himself as a manager. Davey Johnson took over. There were a lot of shady things that had happened. And all of a sudden, I get traded by Jim Bowden to the Cincinnati Reds. And, you know, our family at the time, I've never been one to hold a grudge. And I did not do it then. But it was, you know, a little uncomfortable for my family. Now you're going to go back and your boss is going to be the guy that let me go. Um, and you know, and my dad has never been able to hold a grudge either. So we, it worked, it worked okay for us, but at the time, man, it was, it was just a little bit of, it it was a little bit inconsistent as far as do I want to be here or not? But the love that I have for the city of Cincinnati, the love that I have for the fans of Cincinnati, it was the right place to be for me at that time. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, with the with your childhood, with dad and his role in those big teams of the seventies, to have a conflict at that particular point, uh, yeah, could I can see how it could be a little bit awkward. You're there for three years. Uh, Ninety seven, you have a big year with with the limited abs that you were getting. You hit sixteen homers, drove in fifty two, and that's when I started to to notice. And for the people listening out there, uh, there are certain guys in this game that have an innate uh, skill set to pick up things. Uh, Eduardo is one of them. One of uh, To this day, one of, my, one of my teammates I remember, Eduardo, if you need something, go to Eddie. He's been, he's been studying these pitchers. He, he'll, he'll find that tell. He'll, he'll, he'll say, Booney, you want to, you want to know what it, what's coming? You want to know he's giving it up? And I always used to be in amazement. You know, Mark McElmore, when I went to Seattle, was great at doing the same thing. Stan Javier uh, was very similar. They could pick up the little nuances. I was never good at it, but I'd always be willing to listen. You know, you, you had that ability uh, to sit on the bench and you go, Booney, you want to know if he holds his hands here, it's a breakable. Uh-huh. And I said, Eduardo, how the hell can you see that? He goes, it's what I do, man. I'm sitting here a lot. I'm watching a lot. That's all you know, I do. You know, they don't, they don't have any lefties coming out of the pen today. So I got, I got work to do. Uh, but it was always amazing to me. And you always had it right. You always had it right. There were certain guys. And I tell, you know, when we get used to get to second base and, and say, hey, I'm picking, I, I got the signs. Do you want them? Well, first thing that went through my head, who's asking me? <laughs> If it's Eduardo Perez, absolutely, Eddie. I want him when you're at second base because I trusted you. If it were Mark McElmore at second base, if it was Stan Javier, of course. No, no, of course. But if it's, uh, I'll give me an. I I got to get. I'll tell you what. If if it's reversed and it's Brett Boone giving you the signs, you you might you might want to want to proceed proceed with caution. And believe me, Eddie, I wanted to give the signs as much as anybody, but I get to second base and that wasn't one of my skills. And I was like, all right, I want to give the sign. I want to relay it so bad. But if I mess up, I will not be able to live with myself. So I was always tentative. I wasn't always the best, but I always knew that about you. Do you remember what you used to tell me? Because you had success against him. You wore out Randy Johnson. Uh, you liked hitting off Billy Wagner. Yeah. And I always re- I saw Billy Wagner's ball. It looked like a beach ball to me, but I'd always miss it, and I'd always pop it up. I, I, I think I went over ten career against Billy Wagner, the great closer for the Astros. Right. But do you remember what you used to tell me? And, and I think our conversation was at the Astrodome. 
And do you remember? Or you want me to I'm tell? T- you? Please, please tell me because I, oh. think I, I think I probably told you swing over the ball. Yes. <laughs> Here's how the conversation goes. Eduardo, how do you hit this guy good? I can't square it. He goes, Booney. All right, let me tell you what to do with Wagner. When you, he goes, how do you? You said, how do you see it? I said, I see it big, but I, I always just miss it. He goes, Oh, you're not doing it right. His ball rises. He goes, So what? <laughs> so this is Eddie telling me the story. He says, Booney, when you see when you see the pitch, just swing an inch over the ball. Absolutely, square it up. And I'm looking at you like you got two heads. <laughs> How the hell do I see the ball and swing an inch over the ball? Who does that? And you're like, no, that's that's easy. And I'd see you time and time because that was a time in your career where if Billy Wagner's coming in, I you're probably going to grab a bat. And, I wanted to hit. Right. And I'm going, how does he, you know, and it just, it goes to show you certain guys see certain pitchers better than others, have more success. But I remember that's what you gave me. I could never figure it out because I never did get a hit. But I always remember you were one of those guys and you took a lot of pride in it. And uh, man, it's it's a lot of value on a team when you've got guys that really are picking and and, and finding little nuances in the game that give you that slight edge. Did you did you always were you always like that growing up or is that something that came to you with more experience? Uh, well, I'll say this first and foremost. For me, the most important thing was always to be the best teammate ever. Uh, I took pride in in being a really good teammate. I still do, even with what I do at ESPN. I still do. Um, I, I want to make sure that my teammates are as prepared or even better prepared than I am. Uh, it's something that that's how I'm built. But the story all started, believe it or not, in 1983. And it started with the uniform that my dad put in my lock, uh, put in my closet. And because I had the ability now to sit in the dugout. Remember I said that I used to flip seeds with uh, John Denny. Mm -hmm. Well, Pete Rose, one of the seeds hit Pete during the game. And Pete snapped at me and said, grab a towel and put it on the steps. Remember in, in the vet, you couldn't sit on the carpet because if not, you're, you're, um, Uh, you know, your elbow would get all scratched up and everything because the carpet would just wear it out. So you get a towel, you put it there so you can lean. And he goes, now tell me what's coming. And I said, excuse me, I'm 12 years old, about to turn 13. I'm 83, so I'm 13, about to turn 14. In the summer of 83. And he tells me, he goes, tell me what's coming. I'm like, I don't know. He goes, well, look at the glove. He's looking at me like if I'm an idiot. And he goes, Watch the pitcher. I don't care if you talk between pitches, but you're going to tell me every time you're going to keep your eye on the pitcher and you're going to see if he does something different. If it's the finger, if it's the angle of the glove, if it's the the size of the glove, if he's from the stretch, from the windup, you're going to tell me something that he does. If he looks down before he throws and then he doesn't look down on a breaking pitch, you are going to tell me this is your job this year. You're not going to be a bat boy. You're not going to be flipping seeds either. You're going to be paying attention. That 1983 season turned my life around. So I fast forward all this. This is what I did my junior year in college. I leaned on this. I learned how to be able to pick pitches, not only when I was hitting, but also when I was at first base as a base runner, when I was at second base to help my teammates out, and also to be able to steal bases. I stole like 30 bases, I think it was in college. And I stole 33, I think, in my first two years or something like that in pro ball. But I did it because I knew what was coming. Now, 
going back, I leaned on it even more when I got to ABAW at Palm Springs when I was with the Angels. What no one knew was in Palm Springs, I bunted a baseball that was coming at me off my left eyeball. And I was legally blind in a ball. And no one knew this because when we did our eye tests, I would do my eye tests separate at an independent doctor that I would pay cash on. And while we were in spring training, I would be the interpreter for every Latino player. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Tell me what's there on 2020. Okay, this is what he said. I would memorize it. And then I would repeat it whenever I had to close my right eye, when I had to put a, put that little thing over your right eye so the left eye could see. That's my lead eye. That's my dominant eye. I was terrible at pop-ups. If you don't remember, Booney, I didn't like pop-ups. I remember. You remember. You used to tell me all the time. You said, Booney, you take everything. You take it. You take it. Because I could not, I didn't have depth perception. I, didn't, I couldn't see anything out of the pop-ups. The lights, under the lights at night because my pupils permanently dilated, more light would come in as well. So because more light comes in, anything that goes into the lights, I'm in trouble. Now I don't have depth perception, which I still don't. My pupils permanently dilated, and I had a, I had a tear in my pupil. That's the reason why. And I had a, a traumatic cataract in my eye. And because of that cataract, everything looked foggy, and I couldn't see the rotation and the spin with my lead eye. So I needed help. And what I needed was help from the pitcher. And the pitcher gave me that help, especially with their glove and their angles. And I found something out. Lefties, because they usually go fastball changeup. The slider is thrown, but it's out of the zone usually after the first strike. So Hal McRae helped me out. He was our hitting coach as well. And he told us, he told me one time in Chicago, he said, don't swing at the slider. Don't swing at the slider. Don't swing at the curveball. Sorry, don't swing at the curveball, lefty curveball, because it's meant to be thrown as a ball. Look fastball. If you see spin, let it go. I used to see spin late, so I just let it go. But at the time, I was I was fastball changeup because the lefties used to throw that circle change and fan the glove on the changeup, and it was a lot easier for me to pick up. Randy Johnson used to fan the glove on the slider and keep it tight on the fastball, and I was able to then lay off the slider or look for the slider up and hunt the fastball and make sure, yes, that I swung a little bit higher than where the, fa- where the ball was going to be. If I were to tell you our conversation today, you now fast forward to what you were talking about, swing above the baseball against Billy Wagner, we would call that spin rate. He'd have a low release point. He's got high spin rate, so that ball, just the gravity works against it and stays in an even plane. It looks like it's rising from where we stand, but in reality, it's not. But our swing path would always be under the baseball. And I told the same thing I told you, I told Chipper Jones. Because he asked me, he goes, what do you do against Ryan? I said, I swing over the baseball. He goes, what? He goes, try it. You're going to barrel it. So any pitcher, I used to look at the spe- I used to look at the velo. Any pitcher that threw 95 or above, I would try to swing above the baseball every time. And then I used to just let the dogs bark. It was perfect. <laughs> that is, no, it, it, it is. And, and I love it because I'll listen to you on Sunday Night Baseball now and you'll get off on one of your tangents, but it's always smart. It's always smart points. And it's points that sometimes everybody 
can't grasp unless you were there. I, I mean, I'm understanding exactly what you say. And, it, and it's really interesting to me because I love getting off talk is, topic. And I really like talking deep into that game inside the game type stuff. Like you said, little things like very rarely after the first strike, will they throw that slider for a strike? And you're right at the big league level, they've gotten to the point where that's, you know, we were, we were talking about, uh, I remember the other night I was watching a game and, and there were some real smart points made because believe me, Eduardo, I listen to a lot of games. I watch a lot and a lot of people don't know what they're talking about. But some do. And we were talking about that tunnel that a pitcher throws to. And, and it starts as a strike, but it doesn't end up as a strike. That's what the greatest yeah. pitchers do. That's what John Smoltz used to do. I used to, man, I couldn't pick up that spin on his slider because it looked like a fastball to me. He just had mm-hmm. that thing with me. But he would throw that fastball on the outside corner, that four-seamer, and then he'd throw that slider off that fastball. It would start in the outside corner that I thought was a fastball. He would never throw me a slider for a strike. And you hear Johnny talk about it on the on the telecast all the time. He said, he wouldn't throw you a strike if he'd get you to swing at a ball. Those Braves Absolutely. of the 90s, they, those Braves of the 90s, they were so astute at that. It's like they always used to talk about Glavin picking, picking, picking the corners. Of course, in a 3-2 count with the bases loaded, Tommy will throw you a ball off the plate if you're a free swinger other than throwing you a strike and maybe getting hurt with a ball in the gap or something like that. And that's just next level thinking that, that the elite pitchers of our day and of today use. Uh, but it's really, it's fun for me to listen. It's fun for me to talk about it. Cause I really like that side of the game. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember being with the Cardinals and I know we're going to get to that uh, soon, but it's related to this. Woody Williams didn't have the greatest stuff in the world. Right. But he, one thing that he did tell me, is he goes, look, it's easy to throw strikes. Now, the art of pitching is when to throw the ball out of the zone and make it an effective pitch. If it's a fastball up and in, it'll open up maybe the bottom half of the zone. But if it's a slider down and away, you know you're going to get the chase just because you have that hitter set up. You can't throw everything in the zone. If you do, you're going to get hurt. And early in my career, I was like, wow, man, why didn't I figure that one out earlier? If I would have known this early on, and that's where sometimes I look back and I, I wish I would have listened a little bit more when I was younger to the art of being able to set up a pitcher because that's what keeps veteran hitters around a long time is that art that they have and the ability to explain it to young players makes that player even more valuable. Yeah, it's so true because I learned a lot of my stuff the second half of my career. My second time was Seattle. And, man, I used to think through, and Edgar was my partner. And, you know, we'd hit side-by-side in the lineup, and we'd constantly be talking about it. And and we'd be talking about five deep. And and I always I say five deep where I'm thinking about my at-bat when I'm up fifth this inning. So it's, there's so many different variables, you know, and that's why I, I laugh at, at the analytics today when people just throw them out. Oh, here's the raw data. Well, I need that in a context because my five deep means I'm coming up fifth. Who's hitting in front of me? Who's hitting behind me? Yeah. Who's in the bullpen? Yeah. Is the guy on, is the guy hitting behind me hot or is he cold? Would they rather face me or would they rather face him? I'm going to go to Edgar if he's hitting behind me in the lineup and say, Edgar, how do you do off this reliever? Whoever that reliever may be. He might say, Booney, I wear this guy out. Or he might say, he's had a lot of success against me. Just that knowledge right there tells me, well, then maybe he's going to be a little more careful with me. 
Or Edgar says, I wear this guy out. He doesn't want no part of me. Maybe he's going to come after me that at bat with the base open a little bit more. So those little nuggets that we have, it's not look at the data and say 86% of the time on a 2-0 or, or on a 1-2 count, he throws a breaking ball. To who and when? Exactly. You know, I, I laugh at people all the time. Well, how did he know a slider was coming here? I said, well, you got to put it this way. They have a history together. Believe me, we remember more than you think. Maybe three times this year they faced one another, and twice the hitter beat the pitcher on a fastball and hit two balls in the gap for doubles. That's why he was sitting on the slider in this particular uh, situation. Where, But you need to know the backstory before you just throw it out there randomly. Me and you look at a stat full of 1-2, 64% of the time he does this. Throw that away. I, I used to say that when I was in Seattle and Ichiro was our leadoff hitter. Yeah, 99% of the time he starts you out for the first pitch fastball. Yeah, the first pitch of the game to Ichiro? Okay. In yeah. the seventh inning with a base open to me? I don't think I can use those statistics. Well, how about, how about, and let's keep it current. How about right now, Aaron Judge? The other day, everybody's like, why, why don't they just throw a lefty against him? You know, just put a lefty in relief against him because he's struggling off lefties. His numbers against righties are better than lefties. I looked at him, I started laughing. And they're like, what? I'm like, look, he might face a, a left-handed starter is completely different than a left-handed reliever. Without left-handed doubt. reliever comes in with two pitches. Or, or maybe just one dominant pitch and the other one he's hoping that at least he can show it to you to go back to that. So I said, look it up just so you want to know. And I have no idea the numbers, but I guarantee you he probably struggles against left-handed starters and he rakes left-handed pitching, uh, left-handed relievers. And I'm going to throw these numbers at you real quick. He's got 103 plate appearances against left-handed starters. He has six home runs this year, Right. Now, against the relievers, he's got 58 plate appearances against relievers. He's hitting 348 compared to the 217 against lefty against lefty starters. But he's got seven home runs against the relievers. I said, he's trying to set you up with that lefty reliever. You want to bring him in? Of course they don't bring him in in a game, and they know those numbers. We can't throw those out if it's on TV or radio. But because hitters are different depending on the situation. And pitchers are different depending on the situation as well. And that's where you have to have those checks and balances. But you're right. Everything is different. And that's why, Booney, I love this game. It's a chess match the entire time. Not every swing is built alike. Not every player is built alike. And and that's why I have always believed that the best hitting coaches and the best pitching coaches have to adapt to the guy they're trying to teach or the guy they're trying to help not the other way around. Without a doubt. And it once I always go back to this. There's that layman take that anybody could have in, in the yep. typical, you'll appreciate this. Why doesn't he just throw them sliders? It's like, they in in the in that world they think that the slider's the really tough pitch to hit. I'll tell you what, you let me know you're throwing me sliders. A lot of times I'm not feeling that good. I can roll into a slider much easier than that ninety eight. So that that's a that's a misnomer. And and I remember when I was coming up and I'll stop talking about this, but I, I get caught up because I really like talking about it. <laughs> when I was first coming up as a kid, we all know when we get to the big leagues, what that rookie, he's not here because he can't hit a fastball. No, he can hit a fastball. So what do big leaguers do? They test you with the breaking ball. And I remember when I first got called to the big leagues, Griffey was hitting third in Seattle and they hit me in the two hole. 
And the first question was, well, you're going to get a lot of fastballs in that two hole in front of Griffey as if big league pitchers can't roll a slider in for a strike, (laughs) you know, and I'm going, no, it has nothing to do with the respect or the disrespect. Of course, they're going to pitch to me before they're going to pitch to Kenny, but it doesn't mean I get all fastballs. They're going to test me. And when I first came in the biggest, it was break a ball, break a ball, break a ball, break a ball, high fastball out of the zone. Cause I was aggressive and I had to learn my lesson. But, but when I hear that, that take of, Oh, he's going to get a lot of break and he's going to get a lot of fastballs hitting in this position. If he doesn't hit if he hits the yeah. fastball, well, he ain't going to get a lot of fastballs. But no, right. it, it's funny to listen, and it's and it's cool to break it down. And that's why I do like listening to you because you always like to to take it to another level. And I think that's that's that smart level uh, that that we need to get to. And what what I'm passionate about in this game. All right, moving on. Uh, you go to the Cardinals in '99, and it's an interesting time in in your career. You're with the Cardinals '99, 2000, uh, and then you go to Japan in the middle of it. Um. Well, let's talk about your Cardinals years a little bit. You're playing for Tony Larusa in '99. You hit 344, uh, 2000. You hit 297, and you're in that role, uh, basically pinch hitting off lefties, getting a spot start here and there. How does the Japan thing? You, you go play for the Tigers in Japan. How does that come along? And uh, I've all always been interested because in 2001, after 9/11, the Mariners were going to go to to open the season in Japan. Right, And I was kind of looking forward to it. You know, the Ichiro uh, craze was there. Kazuhiro Sasaki was our closer. And I saw that Japanese audience up close uh, the first year I played with those guys. And I was interested to go to Japan and see what it was like. Uh, We never got to go because of the 9-11 and the precautionary uh, uh, measures they were taking. So I never got to go. You got to do it. I've, I've had a lot of teammates, guys I played with and against go over and have that Japanese experience. How was that for you? Give me a little snapshot of that 2001 year. Man, mixed emotions. I loved it. Loved everything about Japan. I just recently got married too. December 29th, 2000, I get married. January 2001. Um, January 25th, 2001, we take off to go to Japan. My wife and I do. Uh, do and I think it was great, one, for our marriage because we were always together. But two, it was great to be able to experience something different and to start learning the game something uh, differently. I was up and down and, you know, going from the minor leagues to the big leagues. I didn't think that they were going to, um, I don't know if I was going to finish with the Cardinals or not for the next year. And I thought at the time where I was with my age, I can go make a pretty darn good living in Japan. Mind you, I have to start all over again, getting to know the pitchers, not seeing well out of that left eye, all those things. And But I hurt my knee in spring training. We were doing duck squats. Remember all those uh, Mr. Baseball with Tom Selleck? We were doing all those yeah. exercises, and I hurt my right knee doing a duck squat. And I wasn't the same. I, didn't, I had no back leg at all and struggled, ended up leaving after two and a half months of play there. Um, went to get checked, and, um, and then I ended up having surgery, missed the year, and they didn't bring me back, but I thought it was the best thing for me as I was able to play um, and, and, you know, played winter ball, got better. But the experience itself in Japan from being able to see different movement, different pitching, got to learn how to be able to attack left-handed pitchers better, 
I think helped me out in a major way. And that's where I really started thinking, you know, my strategy should be to try to just crush left-handed pitching. So Craig Paquette, the same time that I was struggling in Japan and ended up having surgery, he was having a phenomenal season with the Cardinals, playing first base, third base. They put him in the outfield. He was a right-handed guy against the lefties. He ends up signing with the Detroit Tigers. And during the winter meetings, Tony LaRusso runs into my dad at the winter meetings. He was with the Marlins, and he asked him about me. Hey, how's Eduardo doing? He goes, look, he's in great shape. Just saw him. I mean, the guy's right now, he's focused. And he goes, I'm going to call him. And Tony called me and said, look, no promises, but if you come in great shape to spring training, I got a spot open. I'm looking for somebody that can hit lefties. I said, I'm your guy. I said, don't worry about me. I'm your guy. Whenever you need me, I'm there. If you need me on a tough day, night day, day game, I'm there. I get to spring training and and um, had a blast. I uh, had a really good uh, good spring training. And after that, I never looked back as I knew what my job was going to be at the major league level, especially with my condition of the eye. Remember, no one knew and no one ever did know about my eye. I don't think you ever you ever even knew that I couldn't really see out of my left eye. And well, I, th- I think you, I think you kind of touched on it, but didn't get right. into it like now. Right. So, and yeah, I touched on it, but I'm, I'm talking about the days with my teammates. I never really told my teammates, Hey, this is my excuse. I didn't want that as an excuse. This is something that I had to do. I wanted to do it as long as I could. And my goal was to try to win a championship and be able to get my 10 years in. And I never was able to win that championship, but I was able to get those 10 years in. And, you know, and it worked for me as far as being that professional player. But it helped me see the game differently as going back to the Cardinals this time in a solid role of being that power-hitting right-handed guy against left-handed pitching uh, played a major way for me. Yeah, in 2002, you hit 10, and uh, 2003, you hit 285 at 11, 11 jacks. And in 02, you go to the playoffs, you guys lose to the Giants. But until you, you know, you said you were you were finally at, you were at a place in your career where you really uh, accepted that role, and you knew your role. You knew coming to the ballpark today, all right, here's my job. I know when I'm going to probably play. I know innings in advance where there's a possibility I'm going to get a big at bat and it's a niche position. And you know, my career playing every day, I thought that was the hardest thing in the world. But when I really take a step back and look at the role you had to play, I remember my early days in Cincinnati playing with Lenny Harris, who ends up, I think to to this day has the most pinch hits ever. Uh, and Coop would would tease me all the time, like, Booney, man, let me get a start. Let me get a start. <laughs> and I'd laugh, and, and uh, once in a while, can't, Lenny play second base. And uh, I remember I got hurt. Uh, this is the, I think it was opening day. I had elbow chips. It was that 96 year. And I started on the DL, and Lenny had to play second base quite a bit. And I remember him sitting on the bench like, boom, when are you coming back, man? I said, I wanted to get a start. It's too many in a row. You know, I'm getting exposed. And we had Thomas Howard and, uh, and, yeah. and Jerome Walton. They called each other the stunt Juice. squad. The stunt yes. squad. And they said, the stunt squad's got to play sometimes, guys. We're a big part of this team. And without a doubt. But uh, it's, it's tough, the job you did, until you can kind of find it in yourself to, okay, this is my role. It's almost like being a DH. 
You know, it, it's it's different when you're used to being a, a defender all the time, and all of a sudden you're just. I remember watching Edgar for years. He had to keep himself busy to stay in the game. He'd always be up riding his bike, and he said, "I have a routine. You know, you go out and play second base. I got to find a way to be in the game. So when I have a big at bat in the six, I got to be ready. And, and uh, I guess you adapt to to the role you're given and and what your role is on that team. But uh, man, it's it's a tough job. It is. It, it was a tough job, but for me, it was fun because I loved watching the game as well. And I loved seeing my teammates have success. So I would help them out if I saw something in a picture or not. Sometimes I'd go into Tony's office and I'm like, Tony, hey, um, if it's, let's say, Mark Pryor, uh, I got something on Pryor. You know, he goes, you have something on Pryor. And that's when Pryor was just lighting it up with the, with the, with the Cubs. And I'm like, yeah. So I, I got him. He goes, all right. Um, next thing you know, next day I'm playing third base. And Roland has a bad neck. And he's like, you're in. See what you got. I end up going deep off prior. Right-handed pitcher. He throws me a breaking pitch. I take him deep on that one. Pop up. Miss, just missed a fastball. And uh, popped up to the catcher. And Tony takes me out after the fourth inning for defense. He's like, you've done your job. We're up 3-1. He goes, I'm taking you out. I'm like, all right. No problem. He goes, you did a great job. That was prior. Prior was out of the game. I um, And because he was out of the game, I was out of the game as well. And and we ended up winning that game. I believe it was three to one uh, or four to two. The score was, but that's how you know that's how Tony would use me. The Jason Schmidt in the postseason that we played the San Francisco Giants. I told Tony. I said, Tony, I got him. He goes, Yeah, I'm not starting you, but be ready if I have to hit for the pitcher. You're my first guy coming in. And the game was a two one game at the time, or three nothing game. Oh, it was a three nothing game at the time. And Jason Schmidt, who was one of the most dominant pitchers. That year came in and he, you know, I'd see what he did with the fastball and what he did with the slider. I had a home run off him on, I think it was on the second or third pitch he threw me. And that was my only postseason home run that I had, I had had. I had limited bats in the postseason, but I was able to have success against righties when I knew what was coming, but I'd let my manager know. In this case, it was Tony. And that's got to be pretty cool. And, and probably you had a rapport with Tony where it's like, yeah. He doesn't. Eduardo doesn't come to me all the time, but when he does, I'm pro, uh, I'm I'm more. I'm gonna be a hundred percent sure, <laughs> right? And he's more apt to listen because he trusts you, and and he could probably see by the quality of a bat you'd give. You know, you didn't disappoint. Doesn't mean every time you say Tony, I got this guy. Right. That, that, that's an automatic homer, but going out and throwing a quality AB up there coming back. I mean, as a manager, I go, well, he did have him. I mean, that's pretty pretty good AB, no matter what the result was. Yeah. Um, 04 and 05 you go to Tampa Bay. This is this is what I was interested in. Uh, you get to go play for my boy, Lou. He left us in Seattle. You got Don Zimmer on the bench. That had to be right up your alley. I had to play for Lou. Oh, he's, to, my right? fa- he's my favorite. So as a kid, remember in, in 90, he won the World Series with the Cincinnati Reds. And, right. you know, I was at the time, I was in college already. But, you know, I'd, I'd spend my summer and, and stuff in, in Cincinnati. I had shoulder surgery after my sophomore year um, in, at, at Florida State. So I spent the summer rehabbing in Cincinnati. And, you know, so I got to know Lou. And Lou calls me up. Tino first called me up because he moved over there. And he went to Tampa. And he goes, Eddie, I'd love to have you here, man. You know, we, we're going to struggle. We're going to struggle. But, you know, it's going to be fun. And, you know, we can really help out some young players. 
and Lou told me the same thing. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to, to fake it or anything. The only thing I told Lou was, hey, Lou, if it's a blowout, because I'm already a veteran, right? If it's a blowout and I'm not starting, don't put me in the game just to get me in that bat. I'd rather go 10 days off than you just give me a game that's 18 to 2, and here I come to hit. Uh, it's just it's so he. I, it was so funny because he'd look over sometimes when we're getting our our butts kicked, all the way to the end of the dugout, and me with my index finger. I'm like, don't even think about it. The big old no, don't even think about. It. He'd laugh the whole time, but he was he was awesome. And you know, he one time I had a three zero count in Tampa, and I was feeling it at the plate. I was like, I got this guy, and I looked over to the third base coach Tom Foley, and he gives me the take sign. And I looked over at Lou in the dugout and I go, I just looked over and Lou sees me looking and, and he's like, he's like, Ed, you want to swing the bat, swing the bat, but you better hit it hard. If you don't hit it hard, you better not come back into this dugout. And I just, (laughs) I'm like, Lou, I'm taking, I'm taking, I just wanted to make sure that I saw the take side. I took, I was, I was like, I'm not swinging the bat. No chance. Um, he's, he was it, it was, it was a great experience. I got my only game I got kicked out of in the big leagues. It was with the Rays. The pitch was at least, I want to say maybe a foot and a half outside. Ryan made the pitch closer for the Orioles. And there was no chance that that pitch was a strike. And I marked it with the bat on the dirt where the pitch went through. I get kicked out. I looked back at Lou, and Lou goes, you better get your money's worth. You better stay out there. So I did. And um, he goes, good job, son. Good job. Because, you know, everything ended with a son with him. That's right. It was son. I mean, to this day, uh, Eduardo, when I'm, when I'm texting you to do the Boone podcast, I, I always finish it with a son. And that was uh, that's compliments of Lou Pinella. One and only. I mean, they only made one of them. How was Zim? Did you enjoy Zim over there, your time over there? I loved Zim. Uh, loves them. My first year with the Rays, I signed a two-year deal, right? And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get my pets. There's like five days left in spring training, and I have a total of maybe 12 at-bats in all of spring training, and I'm supposed to play against lefties. I'm going, well, <laughs> guys, am I going to make the squad or what? And I'd be coming in just for defense late, and I'm like, guys, am I making this team? I signed a two-year deal. I need some at-bats. So is there any way I can go to the minor leagues? And Zim's like, go to the minor leagues and come back when you're ready. Start every line. Start. Make sure you run the base as well. He's like, we're not worried about you. Well, they should have been because um, I think a month and a half into the season, well, on May 9th, I ended up blowing my Achilles, and I lost, the, I lost that entire season and then came back the next year and had a really good year. But um, Zim was – instrumental in showing me how important the little details of the games are. You know, I thought I knew a lot coming from Tony La Russa, but because we had such a young team with Rocco Baldelli, Crawford, we were talented, but we were raw. And we had to go to the basics. Uh, and, and I think that taught me a lot, not only about being a player, but also about how, how to coach young players as well. And I think, that that meant that meant the world to me, and it made me see the game in a different light. Two thousand six, you start off in Cleveland, you finish up in Seattle, and I'm looking at the. I mean, 
186 ABs, you go 253, 9, and 33. Pretty damn good. That's pretty productive from someone doing the role that you're doing. Uh, what told you it was time and, and you were going to call it a career after that year? I got traded to Seattle. I'll be honest with you. I, I picked every place that I played. I made sure that I didn't sign early because I was always going to be that 23rd, 24th, or 25th man on the roster, and I was going to be a valuable part of it. So when I went to Cleveland, I knew that in that division, there were lefties that I could handle really well that were tough on other uh, pitchers. I mean, on other hitters like Johan Santana. I knew that we were going to play if it was against, you know, the Yankees um, between the central and the east. I tried not to go west. And that was done on purpose. And even with my agent at the time, Jeff Murad, um, who then had left the agency, and I always wanted to be in the right place for me to succeed. That was my game plan to be able to get to the 10 years and to be able to have an opportunity to win. Cleveland was that opportunity. There were, it was Mark Burley that was, you know, pitching in that division that I knew I could handle well. Um, and because of those reps, Detroit had a few lefties as well. You go out West, there was only one lefty and that lefty was Wilson with the Tampa, with, with uh, Texas. And then Zito was the other lefty and I couldn't hit Zito really well. So all of a sudden I get traded to Seattle. And the first question I asked Billy Bavese is why did you trade for me? I got traded a month before the trade deadline. Um, I did not know what my role was going to be there. And I felt a little bit out of loop. Uh, the, you know, for my age, I thought the travel was, was something that I already had gotten used to having family time on days off. Remember your days off as a Seattle Mariner, you spent a lot of time on your flights, right? Yeah. Most, uh, most, you're going to log the most miles of any big league. And by far. Yeah. And uh, bar none by far. So I had a lot of travel also from Tampa. I did because when we had to go out west, but with Seattle, with the time change, it was drastic. Your day off, you're on the flight already at 10 o'clock in the morning. When you're in Cleveland or I played in Cincinnati or played in uh, St. Louis, my flights, our flights would leave at 6, sometimes 7 p.m., short flight to your next town, and you can spend the entire day if it's with your family and so on. It just played a little bit differently, but the most important part was there were no lefties in that division. Barry Zito, I got to face, and my next start was probably like 17 days later. It was Barry Zito again, and I struggled off Zito. Could not pick up his pitches really well, his changeup. He hid the glove really well. I just could not pick up spin, and one thing led to another. Um, Hargrove did not know how to use me really well um, from the bench, and I just did not uh, field to be myself. And then all of a sudden I go to Chicago White Sox for spring training the next year as a, as a non-roster invitee, have my best spring training ever. I'm thinking this could be a place where I could land. They didn't have any room for me. They wanted me to go to Charlotte for AAA. And I said, this is the time for me to hang them up time for me to spend a little bit more time with my family. And, um, and, uh, that's exactly what I did. 
Oh, it's amazing. To, and, it, and it all makes sense. I mean, you had it mapped out. And to think that deep, where where to go? Listen, if I, if I go west, it's Zito. I don't like Zito, but I can handle I can handle X, but I don't like Y. And the opportunity doesn't seem to be there for me as if I'm in the American League Central. Uh, just for example, that's that's it's amazing. But it and, makes and not only if, if you're if you're that on top of things, though, like you were in a lot of aspects of your career, uh, you know, stuff like that, where you yeah. probably you would probably explain that to a then uh, Bill Bavese. And he probably had a tough time thinking, well, I never thought about it like that, Ed. Yeah, <laughs> I, I never thought about it that deep. And there, there were a couple more, and I, I get what Billy was doing. He was trying to, you know, build a good tandem at first base. He gave up a lot. He gave up a lot. His Drupal, I got traded for his Drupal Cabrera. At the time, I was like, "Who? what's in his Drupal? Well, in his Drupal, <laughs> ended up playing for That's exactly what I told, you know. It's exactly what I told, uh, you know, uh, Eric Wedge, our manager in Cleveland. I'm like, I'm getting traded, really? And we were in Cincinnati on a day off. And I was looking forward to playing in Cincinnati. And, you know, going back home and I had to drive that day off back to Cleveland to then fly to Seattle, meet the team there. Uh, it was it was really difficult, but it was um, it was part of the business. I get it. But there were three pitchers in the league that I knew that I had to stay away from three. One was Zito. The other two were with the Cleveland Indians, CeCe Sabathia and Cliff Lee. Those are so those are three guys that I just knew that I just did not see the ball well. Oh, by the way, also Andy Pettit was another guy. Those those four, I, I just struggled against. And it's because they hid the ball well, could not pick up what they were doing. And I needed that help. I needed to be able to, to do that, to be able to give my team and myself an advantage moving forward in at-bats. That is really, that's really interesting. I mean, that's, you know, you, you, I run across a lot of stories in the game, but to be explained the way you explain it, it's it's really kind of fascinating how how your career and everything evolved and, and how well thought out you were about where to place yourself and, and how you, you could help a particular team in, in the best way possible. It's yeah. it's it's really it's and, really cool stuff. And for me, it wasn't about the money also, because there were some better offers but I knew the outcome wouldn't last too long. Uh, the risk that I took was going to Tampa Bay. My father actually told me, he goes, are you sure you want to go there? It was either taking a one-year deal with St. Louis to go back for less money or taking a two-year deal with Tampa Bay, make more money, and also the state taxes and the whole thing. And I was like, well, let's do Tampa Bay and let's figure this thing out uh, because I believed in Lou. Uh, you retire, you go to baseball tonight. You always know you want to do that and what you're currently doing. No, no, I, I, I did not. I had no idea what I was going to do. So when I went to spring training, uh, with the Cleveland Indians in winter Haven, Bart Swain, their PR director had us reading some stuff that we were going to put on the scoreboard for the season. And they had these cardboard, uh, layouts that we had to read. And you have all these guys struggling with the read. And I'm like, Come on, guys, just say it really quick here. And I just read it off and, you know, had a, a one hit. And they're like, boom, I'm done. And then I did an interview and Bart Swain listened to the interview that I did and a breakdown that I did, I guess, of myself or of a teammate of mine. And he pulled me aside and he goes, hey, listen, I'm hoping that we make the postseason. But if we don't, 
are you interested in doing something like in baseball tonight? Remember, remember there was no MLB network or anything like that back then. And I was like, Oh man, of course I love that show. Of course I'd be interested in doing baseball tonight. And he's like, all right. So I end up getting fast forward. I end up getting traded to Seattle. I don't think anything of it. And I get a phone call as we're coming through security in Seattle on our way to the tunnel before we get to the clubhouse right there by the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And, and he calls me and he goes, Hey, um, remember that conversation? You want me to put your name in uh, to do it? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And le- next thing I know, a gentleman by the name of Jay Levy from ESPN calls me and asks me if I would be interested. I said, absolutely. And he goes, what will it take? I said, just get me out there. What, how do I get there? He goes, you rent a car. I said, perfect. And he goes, how much would you, uh, this is what we would be. I said, no, don't give me any money. I want to do this because I want to do this. And that way, that's the way that I ended up getting my foot in the door. And um, the rest is pretty much history. After I did not make the team with the White Sox in spring training, they called back and made me an offer. And I had had knee surgery. So I felt that my career was already pretty much over. It's time to hang them up. And Merba is the voice of reason in the family. And she's like, try to do TV. I think you have the personality for it. That was it. (laughs) Yeah, you went uh, baseball tonight from 2006 to 11. But you're also, I I didn't even realize until I started reading up about my my old teammate, Eduardo (laughs) Perez, how much you were doing. You're managing in Puerto Rico. You're (laughs) you're manager of the year in 2008. Uh, Now, I do remember you went to the Marlins. You were the hitting coach in the Marlins in 2011. You were a special assistant to the Indians with the Indians, now the Guardians. Uh, You manage the World Baseball Classic. You're an Astros bench coach. Uh, your first base coach with the with the Astros before it all came back, and you went back to ESPN in 2014. All those experiences you've had, you've had at at all the different positions. You know, like I said, from first base coach to managing to hitting coach. What did you enjoy the most? The one that I disliked the most was hitting coach. It's I'll, tough, I'll, isn't it? I'll, wow. I'll get that out there. I'll get that out there in a hurry. Yeah, the one that I disliked the most was hitting coach. The one where I learned a lot was as a bench coach. The one that I loved the most was as a manager. Um, And when I managed in winter ball, three years managed there, um, went to the World Cup, managed Puerto Rico also internationally in the World Cup, um, was the hitting coach for the World Baseball Classic as well. Uh, I was supposed to be the third base coach the year that I left to go to back to ESPN. Um, But every spot every position you learn from and you learn from the players you learn from your fellow coaches you learn from the manager but dealing with personalities dealing with different cultures understanding them dealing uh, for me is the most rewarding part of this and being an impact not only to the young players but also to the veteran players is is the most uh, impactful thing uh, that i've ever done um you know, besides obviously my, you know, the birth of my kids and, and with family life, separating family. But as a job, doing that, I understand why coaches can't get enough of it. I understand why they, they, they continue to go out there and, and do it. And then I'm not only talking at the professional level, the collegiate level, uh, but also just at the grassroots level, why they do it, because it's so rewarding. And having 
been successful two out of the three years when I managed in Puerto Rico, um, you, you, you tend to get the itch of why you end up loving this game as much as one does. Back to ESPN in 14. Uh, and this was interesting. Um, we had your partner on uh, recently on the Boone podcast, Carl Ravitch, and you guys were a tandem. And uh, back in 2020, he told me a couple funny stories off air. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you, at that particular time, what was going on in the country, and they just starting to shut everybody down. Uh, and and I don't I don't want to compare it to a 9/11 moment because it wasn't right. 9/11, I think, when we came back as you know as Major League Baseball players, I thought that we had a duty when the, and you remember this time we all had to vote whether should we play, should we not play, and I think overwhelmingly the players said we need to go out there and play and and help. Uh, people that are grieving out there get through this, you know, instead of sitting around and mourning everything all the time to have something to watch, to, to draw our attention away. You got a big league baseball game from seven to 10 every, every night in a little bit of a way, I think 2020, what you did with ESPN and the KBO, uh, the Korean baseball, I think was important. I don't think it was in a huge way, but I, I think in my lifetime, I don't think I would have ever watched a Korean baseball game. <laughs> but Eddie, as you remember, everything was just shut down. There was nothing. There Tell was no sports. It. And all of a sudden I see that Eduardo and, and Carl are going to call the, the Korean baseball league. And I'm going, what? And I'll be damned if I didn't watch. Hey, and Cause I was looking for something. How, when you were told you were going to do this, you're set up from home. No, uh, I don't no. even know. You you expl- You set it up for uh, me. Ravage told the story. I want to hear your version. My version simple. I get my boss, Phil Orleans, calls me. And he goes, Eduardo. I said, yeah. He goes, he goes um, hey, listen, we're going to be calling Korean baseball. I'm like, okay, when am I leaving? And I got to take my family with me, man. I don't know what I don't know where we're gonna play again. They got they gotta come with me. And we have to do quarantine, right? And he goes, No, no, no. You're gonna broadcast from the house. And I said, What? And he goes, You're gonna broadcast from the house. I said, At what time are we recording this? He goes, No, it's gonna be live. And I said, Wait a second, Phil. We're gonna be he goes, Yeah, you're gonna get a computer, we're gonna set you up. This is groundbreaking stuff. It's going to be awesome. You're going to do it from the house. Ravi, you and Ravi are going to be calling the games. I, got, I was I was in awe. They came in. They set up the unit. Um, we took it to another level. First, it was just a MacBook. All of a sudden, you know, to credit a Phil, Keats bouncing stuff off me. What, what else do we need? I'm like, we need a monitor. We need a bigger monitor, 50-inch or whatever it may be. We get a uh, 32-inch monitor, if I'm not mistaken. I have it in front of me right now. And now now I'm splitting the screen. I've got the KBO going, the whole thing working. But the first game, first game, I I lied to you not here. And I don't know if Carl told you the story or not, but we had no idea how the feeds were going to be. Everybody's raw when it comes to being in studio in Bristol, Connecticut. I'm raw being here in mine. He's in his. I got a camera, which was actually another iPad flipped over that he can see me. I can see him. And all of a sudden, it starts where the games were starting. I believe it was at 525 in the morning. 
We had to be set up by 3.30 in the morning. Mind you, we're in the East Coast. 3.30 in the morning for their start at 5.25, we were coming on. At the last minute, it's like 5.22, they tell us, hey, it's raining where we're going to start, so we're going to go to the next game. We have no idea how to pronounce any of these names. We don't know who the players are. We've been prepping for this lineup, and all of a sudden, our producer tells us they're going to switch over to the next game. And we're like, what are you talking about? They're like, this is roll with it. Carl, all of a sudden, I look at his screen. I look at his room. And by the way, he's broadcasting in his bedroom while his wife is sleeping. And he tells me, he, he disappears. He leaves. He thinks the game's going to start at 5.30, forgets that it's at 5.25. The first voice that people hear from the KBO, the first game ever, the Open, it starts with me. Welcome <laughs> to the Korean Baseball Organization, the KBO on ESPN. It was beautiful. And I'm going on, and Carl's coming back, and he hears me just talking because I always talk. And He's like, what's going on? I'm like, we're live. We're live. <laughs> and he just took over from there. But it did not. It stopped raining, and we did the game that we were prepping for originally. And I'll tell you this. It was a major success. We tested everything. We weren't afraid to make mistakes. And I think that's the one thing that Phil Orleans um, was able to, to instill on us is, look, be afraid. Take risks. Um, be vulnerable. And that's exactly what I've been ever since I've been on, at ESPN. And especially after the KBO, um, it, it created a, an unbelievable brotherhood of being able to understand, look, man, just roll with the punches. Don't complain and let's do it. After 2020, we're different. We're different. We broadcast differently. We treat each other differently, always with respect, but um, it always has been before, but even more now as, I'd go through a wall for that man, and I believe he'd do the same thing for me just because of our experience having having to wake up in the morning because of our responsibility, and not only to the United States, but I have a map here, and I had pins on the map, and people would tweet at me from all over the country, and they'd send me pictures, and I'm talking all over the world, from from South Africa to South America, Australia, Thailand, people were watching in Germany. It was awesome. It was awesome. One person was watching from their boat in the middle of the Atlantic. That's how cool it was. Uh, we entertained the world for, for quite some time. Yeah, very cool. cool. And like I said, like I said, I mean, I watch it. It's like, there's nothing on. We got to get our fill somehow. And uh, that was I, I watched some 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 telecasts, but it's interesting your stories. Like you're actually doing your, you're in your room and you can't find Ravi, and that's how it's all kicking off. But like you said, you you, you made it work. It ended yeah. up stop raining. You got like I know how what you're talking about when it comes to preparation and being ready for before each and every game. You got your your notes, and you know that especially KBO. I mean, it's one thing if I said Eduardo, you got to wing it. Uh, Sunday night baseball were changing. Well, you know the yeah. players on the other team, but your KBO, you don't know any of these guys. Man, I had no idea who they were, but I'll tell you what, I love them all. And the best part about it, fast forward, I had to broadcast with Jason Benetti the Olympics, and we had to do it also from from uh, Connecticut, from Stanford, Connecticut, and from the NBC studios. 
And when Korea played, I was like, this is a no bracket to do this game with my eyes closed. All the stars of of the KBO were playing on that team. I was like, I know them. I don't need the prep for this. And that was so cool. Jason Benetti, who also then jumped on board and did games also for the KBO, did not have to do it either. The cool part about all this, I was jet lagged here in Miami during the the pandemic. (laughs) That's right. You had to be up so early. Jet lagged. It was great. 2022 and and uh your sunday night baseball you're the you know and today uh in a world we live in with the technology we have and we can get our information anywhere we can watch a game here listen to a game here but still sunday night baseball is still sunday night baseball because all the other games are off the docket and there's one game for everybody that's been doing whatever they do during Sunday. You know, you got all the day games and then you always know that there's one game at night. It's the only game in town. When you get the call, you're going to be Sunday night baseball. Uh, it's a pretty special seat, especially a guy that you grew up uh, around. And that's the the uh, the legendary Joe Morgan, kind of his. He was kind of the original guy that you're in his seat right now. Anything special with that, but but more importantly, when you got the call, you're going to be Sunday Night Baseball with Carl Ravitch. What'd you think? Wow. Um, to me, that was look. You're right. You know, we grew up watching, and and when I say grew up, we're, we're in college. When you're in college, what did you what did you do on Sundays? Well, you were out on the West Coast, but it's a little earlier for you, five o'clock. But for us at Florida State in Tallahassee, it was eight o'clock games. It used to not start at seven. It was eight o'clock games, Sunday night baseball. And it was John Miller, Joe Morgan, period. That was it. That's who we watched. That was the only game in town. And then, you know, and then we were able to, you know, fast forward from there where, you know, Dan Schulman took over for, for some time before Vascursion came in also with, with Alex. And then your brother was there as well, um, Aaron, but, to me, Sunday night baseball was and always will be the, the main staple of the game. I think Anthony Rizzo the other day said it also. It's a big stage. It's who we always watched. And, and I have so much respect for that telecast uh, because we know that all eyes are on us. And our job is to be able to explain how difficult of a job these guys make look easy. And one thing that I try not to do in any of my telecasts is say a number. I think we can all fall in love with um, a number and say, well, this guy's hitting two, you know, I'll, I'll be old school. I won't go OPS on you. I'll say this guy's hitting 295 with 24 home runs. You know, he's, he, he likes fastballs. That's not breaking it down. For me, breaking it down is you, you can look that up. You can look that up on the MLB app. You can look that up on Baseball Savant, all that stuff. Uh, my job is to explain the why. And, you know, for a lot of criticism sometimes that Joe would take, I think it was always from, like, players, former players, just because, oh, you're stating the obvious. Yeah, but for middle America, for the people that don't understand, our job is to be able to teach and explain the game to the young, aspiring kid that is just watching the game for the first time or for the first or for the person that, is coming from a country that doesn't understand baseball at all. And they're watching it for, you know, for the first year or two, and they're trying to get a little bit more of it. It's to explain how difficult the game was difficult for me. It was never easy to play. So I don't take any play for granted. Now, one thing that I do take, and I tell every player this, if you make a physical error, 
you're okay. I'm not going to get on you for a physical error. If you make a mental mistake at this level, and I think this is where players sometimes get a little sensitive, and I don't care that if they do, and I think that's okay that I don't care, and I think it's better that I don't care if they do, I'm going to get all over you because there's no level higher than the big leagues. And if you don't know how to do a mental thing in the game, if you throw to the wrong base, if you just put your head down, if you, let's say, don't run out of the box, when it's it doesn't take a skill to run out of the box after you hit a ball, then I'm going to be all over you. And, and I have every right to. And I'm okay with it. And I tell them. And I show up in the clubhouse. I'm accountable for it. I show up the day before on Saturdays. And I go to the clubhouse on Sundays. And they all know my phone number. They all know how to reach me if it's via DM. I'm, I'm accessible and I, I own up to it. And it doesn't matter if you are, let's say, Aaron Judge or if you are a first-day call-up. I'm going to treat you the same. And, but I'm going to treat you with the respect that you treat the game. Not me, but the way you treat the game. Because I'm here because of the game. My father played and got to the United States because of the game. And I respect the game because the game's still going to be there when we're not. Pretty awesome. Eduardo Perez. Hey, man, it's been a pleasure. It's It's been a lot of fun catching up with you and, and kind of going down memory lane. I'm proud of you. You're doing a hell of a job on, on Sunday Night Baseball. I'll be tuning in. And I'm going to start I'm gonna start texting you a little bit more during the game and critiquing you a little bit. That's what I want, man. <laughs> Bring it on. Bring it on. I love it. Please do. Eduardo, give your dad my best. He's always uh, my time, and he knows this, but my time in, in uh, my five years in Cincinnati and, and your pops used to come around, and that's where I got to know him. Uh, always one of my favorite guys and, and just a class act doggy. Make sure you give him my best. Uh, once again, this has been a pleasure. I appreciate it. And what we do on the Boone podcast at the end of the podcast each and every time is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor. Share the Boone podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the boone 29 i'm dan levy b-a-s-s on air that is base on air all of my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one